whatever comes out in the media, I'm fine with because I know that I've either been the one that has made that happen. It's my actions. But I guess when uh, your family sees those things and your friends and the people that really know who you are, if they doubt who you are because of those things, that's what really frustrated me. So this is the final episode of season one of So What's Next. It's been an absolute whirlwind of an eight weeks and I'm so grateful for all of your support. I've already got a few incredible speakers lined up to go for a even better season two. We will be back in exactly one month's time, so on October the 6th, so get ready for that. I'm always looking for guest speakers' suggestions and feedback on the podcast, so feel free to reach out to me on the podcast Instagram page at podcast so what's next with your recommendations. Thank you so much for your support, and I can't wait for you all to hear this episode. I'm Jamie Nobbs, a former Australian figure skater, and you're listening to So What's Next, the podcast for athletes sharing their stories of how they've transitioned out of their sport and their life after sport. On this week's episode, our guest speaker is the former Australian sprint swimmer and now multi-business owner, Eamon Sullivan. Eamon competed at the Athens 2004, Beijing 2008 and London 2012 Olympic Games and is a three-time Olympic medalist. Now, Beijing was a phenomenal Olympics for Eamon, achieving silver in the men's 100 metre freestyle bronze in the 4x100m freestyle relay and silver in the 4x100m medley relay and came sixth in the 50m freestyle. In the 4x100m freestyle relay, Eamon broke the world record for the 100m freestyle with a time of 47.24 seconds. This world record was beaten by Elaine Bernard of France with a time of 47.20 seconds. Five minutes later in the second semi-final for the 100m freestyle individual, Eamon reclaimed the world record with a time of 47.05 seconds. In the finals, this is where he won the silver medal. Eamon also broke the world 50-metre freestyle record at the 2008 New South Wales Open Championships with a time of 21.56 seconds. This was beaten by Elaine Bernard with a time of 21.50 seconds. In the 2008 Australian Olympic trials, Eamon regained his world record holder title with a time of 21.41 seconds and then broke his record again with a time of 21.28 seconds. Now both of these world records have been broken since but they're incredible feats and I think this might be the first world record holder that we've had on the podcast so I'm really excited about that. Eamon then went on to win the first series of Celebrity MasterChef in Australia in 2009, competed in the third season of Channel 7 series Australia's Greatest Athlete and competed in the 14th season of Dancing with the Stars. Eamon now runs Bib and Tucker in North Fremantle, May Street Larder in East Fremantle, Goody Two's Japanese Whiskey Bar in the Perth CBD, and more recently, uh, Pogo in Mount Hawthorne. So thank you so much for joining. Pleasure. Are you able to tell me a little bit about what your childhood was like and how you actually got into swimming? Childhood was pretty normal, I think. I got into swimming because of asthma, so... Back then, I had early childhood asthma. I don't have it anymore. And the doctors just recommended swimming to strengthen your lungs and to, to get rid of asthma. And that's how I got into it. And I never really enjoyed it um, until probably I was 12 or 13. And, and that's when I started taking it seriously. Right. And what was your relationship with sport prior to that? Did you actually get into any other sports or was it just swimming straight off the bat just for your asthma? 
Yeah, I used to play hockey, hockey and I guess minky when you're younger. So my dad was a, a keen hockey player and, and long distance runner. And I, mean, I still remember him buying my first hockey stick when I was, uh, must have been year three or four, I think. And I was sort of swimming and, uh, and playing hockey all the way till, till I was in grade 10. And I had some knee issues and couldn't run very well without pain. So made the decision, yeah, around year 2000, I think, to, to fully commit to swimming and stop playing hockey. When did you see the Olympics becoming like a dream for you? What, what point in your career? Uh, it sounds weird, but it was actually when I made the Olympics. <laughs> Funny enough, I was, um, I don't know, I think I was just, I was young enough that I, I always wanted to get better at what I did. Um, whether it was hockey or swimming, I always wanted to get better. I wanted to be progressing and, and in you know, the A teams for hockey and swimming, I just wanted to beat my PBs. And Olympics was never a goal because I never thought I'd get there. And it was just so far off the radar. It wasn't so close that I could actually try and, try and aim for it. It was just all little stepping stones before that, like national teams and that next step. Uh, and yeah, I went to Olympic trials and Everything just kind of clicked and went well and I went from being ranked sort of 22nd, I think, in Australia and, and came fifth and made the relay team. So it was probably from that point in 2004 that I said to myself, I never want to miss one of these teams again. Seems like a good start. <laughs> um, what yeah, did your... a bit of luck and a bit of hard work. A bit of luck and a bit of hard work. I like that. What did your training regime look like in recovery as both a junior and then more so as a senior? Changed a lot over the years. Um, as a junior, it was you just got flogged, basically. Swimming was always kind of everyone did the same training for the majority of the time and you just happened to race different events um, and you had different sort of tapers leading into events and a little bit of different work, whereas as these days and, and as I progressed, it got more and more specific towards the events I was doing. So when I was younger, yeah, it was you know 10 sessions a week, a couple of weights and probably swimming about you know, 50 to 60 kilometers a week. And then as I got older and started doing a sprint program, which is when my training really started to pay off and the results started coming, we dropped from about 60 kilometers a week to maybe 45 or 40 Ks. Um, increased the weights, increased the cross training, like Pilates, yoga, a little bit of running, spin cycles, all those sorts of things to try and still get the aerobic fitness in there without destroying my shoulders. And the, my shoulders and my injuries are kind of what dictated how my training went over those years. And I think I've reflected on it a bit. And um, I think my injuries actually helped me become a better sprinter because I couldn't overtrain. All the injuries I had really stopped me from doing a lot of kilometers in the pool. I was able to recover a lot more through the year and not get overtrained. Um, and then when I got to the end of my career, after I had uh, a couple of shoulder surgeries and uh, a year off, a bit of a gap year, I was swimming about 15 kilometers a week. So, you know, less than half of what I was doing at my peak and managed to swim really well towards the end as well before eventually retiring for good. So I saw a lot of different ways to do things over the years and wish I had learned what I learned at the end of my career much earlier. When you're a junior, do you specialise in any events or do you just do as many events as you can? I think when you're, you're really young, you do as, as much as you can. And I used to swim, yeah, uh, sort of eight eight races a day at a swim meet, you know, you'd do 200IM and 100 free, 100 back, all the 50s, the distance stuff, it really never interested me um, and I wasn't very good at it, which is why I definitely got into sprinting as soon as I could. But definitely when you're younger, your body just changes so much over the years, you, you never know what you're kind of going to be good at. So you try to do as much as you can and, and then eventually one day, one, one event usually favours out. And I think nowadays they specialise a little bit earlier in what they do, whereas back when I was a bit younger, it was sort of 
you know, probably 15, 16, even 17 until you started really specialising in, in an event. So what was it about swimming that you actually enjoyed? Besides the fact that it was helping your asthma, what part of swimming were you actually drawn to? If you ask me now, I have no idea because the thought of getting up at five in the morning in the freezing cold just does not interest me. But, you know, early on it was, I think it was um, probably a sense of achievement. You know, I was young and I really didn't enjoy school. I didn't really get much from it. I guess I'm more of a hands-on learner. Um, the whole ritual of school and sitting there for all day, I was just, I, I struggled. I was, um, I, I struggled to focus sometimes. So it was uh, hard to sit in a school seat all day and and try and learn things I didn't understand how they were going to be relevant to me. And swimming was, I used to get up and I was always getting better. I could see results, you know, there was that sense of achievement from looking at a set on the board and having never done it before, or whether it's a specific, um, you know, time cycle. I remember my first time I really felt a sense of achievement in swimming was the first time I actually tried in a swimming lesson. And it was a set of 8.50s on 60 seconds. And back when you sort of 12, 13, that's kind of a big was 55 or 50 seconds back then it was a big achievement to sort of break that sort of minute mark maybe i was younger than that and i remember we finished the set and i did it my face was sort of bright red from from working hard and all the older kids in the squad kind of gave us all a high five and i remember just that feeling of kind of it wasn't teamwork but you did it together and people sort of praising the work you put in and seeing the result from it and from there it just sort of snowballed to other training sets and growing up the ranks in into different squads and then it was swim meets and personal bests and medals then state championships then national championships and then obviously eventually you know international and, and olympic level swimming so i think that seeing all the hard work you put into something and seeing it pay off and having a very tangible level of being able to measure that i quite liked i still like being able to measure results and then later on in my in, in my career it was probably more travel with friends and, and still that hard work and the personal best and all the things you try differently to get results and finding different ways to do things and get better if not the same results. Seeing self-improvement and beating your personal best seems like a really nice intrinsic motivation behind your success. What do you see success looking like now as a business person? Is it similar and how do you now measure it? Success for me uh, and it changes every year I think especially when you have a family and uh Lifestyle and time versus money is, is, is a very topical discussion, I think, for a lot of people since COVID that have been working pretty hard and, and having some forced time off and, and what, what that means. But I guess success is obviously money-based in business. You know, you want to be having the best bottom line and, and making a net profit. So it's very easy to analyse that, you know, on, on the accounting software these days and all the different software there is to manage. And, and for me, swimming was all about, especially sprint swimming, it's finding those 1% differences that make a really big difference in your race. And we used to break down our 50 metres into, I think it was um, almost eight or 10 segments of five metre increments. And we were able to measure our speed through those five metres, how many strokes we took, how many breaths, you know, at what point did we slow down, where could we improve? And for me, now business is looking at a profit and loss or a daily report and trying to figure out those 1% differences that make add up over the year and make a really big difference as a business. So... I guess I get that same kick of making small adjustments to each business and tweaking them to, to pivot to different changes and things that are happening in the market or the environment or a customer base or you know, staffing levels to, to get a better result, whether that's customer satisfaction, profit, uh, recognition in the media, um, certain things that come up. There's a lot of avenues for us to, to change and pivot and especially COVID's made us do that, forced us to do that a lot, a lot more than, than we'd like, I think. 
but it's um, for me that's pretty similar in swimming. You, you you can control how you perform and how your business performs by looking at the finer details and having the big picture in mind, but adjusting really small things along the way. Is that your personality looking out for like those one percenters, or is that like learned behaviour from swimming? Uh, I'd say it's a little bit learned from swimming. Definitely the analysing of a race and those really minute differences in in sprint swimming has probably made me a bit more aware of the smaller things and how, how big a difference they can make. But I think my personality, I'm quite, um, I never stop to smell the roses, I guess, is, is something I've been told a bit. I'm always focusing on what's next and, and what I can do better. So I guess it's, it's probably a little bit of my personality as well as um, my role in swimming and what I did and how I got to where I was, was, was analysing those weaknesses and never just resting on your laurels and saying, oh, that was good, I can't, can't do anything much better. It was always trying to find that next, that next improvement. I think that's something I've noticed interviewing a few athletes now is that there's always that drive. They don't actually stop and reflect. It's a blessing and a curse at the same time. It is. When you look back at your time as an athlete, what are you most proud of? Definitely the world records for me. You know, it's racing against really good people and and the best in the world. There's no one else to lean on. It's all about you. And for me, times was always a really easy way to say, you're the best at this or this is you know this is kind of where you're ranked and for me um you know the world records obviously told me that that's that was the best time that's ever been done unfortunately i wasn't able to to go that next step further with olympic gold i came second in beijing and i don't like saying that that's not one of my top achievements getting a silver medal but i think i, I see the world records as more of a more of an achievement because it's reaching a goal and it's reaching a milestone and so I think that probably, yeah, sits on top of that silver medal, but certainly proud of, obviously, Olympic medals. And it's, it's all about perspective. I never thought I'd be in that position to, to even be at the Olympics, let alone winning a medal. So I should be a lot happier than I am about that silver medal. I think there's a lot more people out there with an Olympic medal than with a world record. So I think it's an incredible achievement. I think both are. What was the most difficult challenge for you as an athlete? So you've already touched on shoulder strains but what other injuries or setbacks did you face during your time as an athlete? Uh, the biggest one was injuries, yeah. So I had, I think, shoulder bursitis, tendonitis, just general inflammation from, from when I was 15 all the way through my career, uh, which ended up in two, two shoulder surgeries. I had five hip operations, so arthroscopes. I had torn cartilage in both my hips along the way and had three before my first Olympics and then another two between then and Beijing, which was my second. I was, yeah, subluxing vertebrae in my back all the time from my start because it was quite a dynamic movement. I dislocated fingers in races. I fractured my heel in a training camp and didn't know and trained on that for sort of three weeks because the Mexican uh, x-rays weren't very good and didn't pick up the injury. (laughs) I had to get my appendix out at a training camp in Arizona when we were in high altitude. No one believed me. They thought I was just trying to have the session off and we just happened to be getting blood tests that morning and the doctor said he'd just check in case because it was sort of the area of my appendix and that got taken out. Uh, and then he told my coach that his kid was fine, I think, four days after his surgery, so I should be fine to train four days later. So I trained four days after my appendicitis well, my appendix got taken out and ended up tearing a transverse abdominis muscle uh, in my stomach because I just wasn't strong enough from all the surgery and managed to train through that. So injuries were always the biggest one for me. Some were just stupid injuries. Others were pushing through injuries without knowing I had them. 
And a lot of them happened either in a good training block or, you know, weeks or a couple of months before a major meet. So I think that was the biggest struggle for me was mentally keeping in the right mindset to race with a really interrupted lead up and preparation towards major meets. Right. Are they all common injuries in swimming? No, hips, definitely not. Probably more football and running. I'm not a great runner. I don't run often, so I don't know how that happens. Shoulders, yes. Uh, the back stuff, yeah, back and neck, um, depending on how many dives you do and, and certain things. And just being in the weight room, it's probably not uncommon. Can you tell me about your heel injury? How did that occur? <laughs> that was, um, we were in a training camp in Mexico and uh, we used to do a, a diving drill where you'd stand on the block, sort of vertical, and you'd hold your streamline and jump forward. So it was all about using your hips and, and driving with your, your hips off the block. And I was doing a demonstration for someone who hadn't done it before. And I didn't realize the pool was very shallow and essentially jumped in. And as I landed, my head was still out of the water with my arms up. So it was that shallow that I could actually stand and just land. I, I nailed the, the drill and yeah, fractured my heel across the back. I found out apparently I must have fractured it before without knowing and it was sort of weakened and made it worse. So, yeah, that happened and then I trained for three weeks on it because the we had an x-ray in um, in Mexico but they didn't pick it up. So I had to train for another three weeks on a fractured heel and could barely walk and everyone thought I was just uh, being soft. Yeah, I don't think that's a common injury in swimming. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Oh, that's I, I just have these habit to get myself in these stupid situations. <laughs> Did you have a support network around you as an elite athlete? Yeah, we had an incredible amount of support. You know, mentor-wise, no one official, but Todd Pearson uh, for me was probably um, the biggest influence of me coming from, a, I guess, an average swimmer to the Olympic team. He came back. He obviously won gold medal in the 4x1 and 4x2 in Sydney. He was in the relay teams. And he was training at the AIS uh, when Michael Clem and um, Gennady Turetsky had just passed away and was one of the coaches there and was, he was coaching Alexander Popov. He came back after Sydney and joined my, my squad. And um, from that point, that's kind of when we started the sprint program. And I, I sort of just watched him and what he did and how professional he was from stretching and turning up early and being ready for every single session and training on the days off and doing Pilates and running and all this stuff that I'd never really done before. I just sort of turned up to training, did my job and we went home. And I really took that next level when he, he moved back and uh, we made our first Olympic team together and raced in an Olympic final in the 4 by one And that was pretty special. And I guess uh, he retired after that meet. And from then it was sort of uh, my coach and myself moving forward. Uh, but also, you know, WA Institute of Sport, we had psychologists, uh, strength and conditioning coaches, biomechanists that analyse our, our races. Probably not the level of, you know, the footy teams do at the moment as far as a, you know, 24-hour access, but when we needed it and race time and, and the support was always there. It was fantastic. How did you manage stress in the sport? Was it more an intrinsic thing with results or did you find external stresses harder to deal with? I don't even know if you could classify it stress looking back on it from, from what it's like being a, a non-athlete and having a lot more uh, a lot more stress in your life. I think, you know, the stresses we did get was probably more, probably more frustration than stress. I think... Um, you know, and when you put it into perspective, for me, it was more injury-based. So when I injured myself, I was frustrated and I was, you know, it definitely got me down. I definitely say so I wouldn't have ever been stressed back in the day. You know, we didn't race enough to get too stressed. I think if we raced as much as footy players, you know, perform, and that's, you know, nearly every week of the year for, for six to eight months, there's a lot more opportunity to be stressed and, and anxious about 
not being ready to, to perform. Uh, for us, we had long enough to, to get ready. So the majority of the year was was not stressful. It was it was hard and it was a lot of hard work and training. And, you know, obviously you had to keep motivated to get ready for those meets. It was sometimes four, six months away. The only kind of stress that would come would be if you got sick, you know, a week before you were supposed to race. Um, and that was the, the most brutal thing about the sport was you didn't have a second chance. You couldn't reschedule. It was on a specific date at a specific time and didn't really matter if you had a problem or something that wasn't going to allow you to be ready. And if you didn't get selected for the team, that was it. There was no, no call-ups if you approved yourself to be fit, you know, a month before the Olympics. And stress isn't the right word. It's probably um, self-doubt starts to creep in think um, which sort of results in you just being a bit more anxious than stressed you know you start to question have you done enough are you ready for this you know what if this doesn't happen what if that doesn't happen and obviously when you get sick those those levels kind of rise as well so I think um, yeah I wouldn't call it stress but there's certainly things that made you anxious and, and kept you up at night if you if you weren't prepared. This is probably a stupid question but I'm going to ask it anyway are you allowed to compete when you're sick? Yeah probably yeah. not anymore at the moment but <laughs> Yeah, yeah, back in the day you could. Sickness wasn't a problem. Uh, yeah, you just either had to get through it or, or you wouldn't race. You know, there was a common cold or, or something that really couldn't hold you back. I'd raced with dislocated fingers before with a, a needle in there to numb it down and, you know, you race when you're not feeling well sometimes. But I think um, that would probably be reassessed given the last couple of months. Yeah. All right. Well, that was my, my dumb question out of the way. <laughs> Prior to the 2012 London Summer Olympics, the men's relay team were hounded by allegations of like bullying, alcohol, drug abuse, which you did address in the media and deny those allegations. But how did you handle the stresses that were put on you by media and external people? Yeah, I guess that, that comes into it as you get, I guess, in that situation when your favourites for something and you know, that, that really only happened once every four years when the Olympics rolled around. And for me, I didn't start experiencing that until sort of 2008 for, for Beijing and obviously 2012 leading into that meet. Again, I don't think it, for me, I didn't see it stressful. I saw it, you know, when you're up and coming and, and you don't have a target on your back, it's an incentive. You know, you, you know that you're not the favourite. You know, you want to beat those people in front of you. I think it becomes a, a, a mental game when you're out in front and people are chasing you. Um, and it really doesn't help when the media talk you up because it's it's hard, especially now. And, and it, it really only became sort of from, you know, that 2012 Olympics was the most access you could have to media. I think in, in Athens, there was no smartphones. There wasn't Twitter. There wasn't Instagram. You really were cut off from the world in the Olympic Village. Uh, we had a, you know, Athens wasn't a great example of the sort of facilities you have um, in the village. It was pretty far behind and they were finishing the bathrooms when we got there. Um, so it was a pretty uh, relaxed village. Um, and they laid the grass as we left. So that was how organised they were. Um, <laughs> Beijing, obviously there's a social media block out when you get there. The only way to access social media, I think there was Facebook then, was to go on roaming and spend thousands of dollars to, to check your Facebook. So no one did. And all the media was in Chinese. There was no English channels except in the village in a couple of locations. And London was the first one. There was there was Wi-Fi in the marshing area and the warm-up areas. So you could check all your phones, your social media, your emails, everything while you're warming up for your race. So there's certainly a few people that fell on that trap of seeing what other people were saying about them before they raced and has the potential to psych you out. I think that's something I always tried to avoid. I tried not to read articles because I didn't want to get into that mindset of wondering what other people are saying am I favorite am I not you know what are they saying about me um, obviously when that stuff in 2012 came out I, I, it wasn't stressful it was definitely more disappointing 
the way it happened. I think uh, as a team, it could have been addressed when it happened. If there was people that had issues with what happened and definitely not saying it was the right thing to do and, and we fell on our sword on that one 100%. Um, but we were kind of hung out to dry a little bit by Swimming Australia at that time and there was a lot, from my point of view, there was a lot bigger issues uh, that led to that point um, as far as the allegations of the toxic culture. It certainly wasn't led by the 4 by one team. There was, there was probably one or two people on that team that a few people didn't get on with and had a few issues with and I think it was masked by, by that event and the fact that we didn't perform, uh, not just our relay team but the whole Olympic team in general. It was sort of pinned back to us as, a, as four people on a team of 40 for the whole reason that everyone didn't swim well, which I, I thought was a bit of a cop-out, to be honest, and I haven't said much, but it was, it was disappointing. It was, I've never seen a, uh, a bunch of kids, and you know, we were kids. I was sort of 26 or 28 at the time, I think, and paraded out in front of the media by their organisation without a head coach there um, and just thrown to the wolves as far as people asking questions and throwing accusations and pointing fingers for something stupid that was done but didn't really affect anyone. So, yeah, it was disappointing. And I guess the only really thing that I, I found is with those sorts of occasions is you worry about what your family think about you. For me, whatever comes out in the media, I'm fine with because I know that I've either been the one that has made that happen, it's my actions, but I guess when uh, your family sees those things and your friends and the people that really know who you are, if they doubt who you are because of those things, that's what really frustrated me. But, you know, my friends know I'm an idiot sometimes, I'm a larrikin and uh, my family knows that and, you know, as long as my family always backed me and, and supported me, it's in, in those scenarios you kind of relied on that. But as far as the general public goes and the way the media reports on things, a lot of people know that it's usually a storm in a teacup and it's all clickbait and I think a lot of that was... Um, and it was just an unfortunate thing to happen, I guess. When you look back at your time, what was your favourite Olympics? Was there a standout Olympics for you? Uh, they're all different and all, all, all great in their own way. It's really hard to – it's like trying to pick a favourite child. It's um, <laughs> a different age. I was a different age at each one. You know, Athens, I was – I just didn't feel like I should have been there. I felt young and, and inexperienced and I just soaked it all up. I was swimming with my, my idols, you know, Michael Cleamy and Thorpe, all these guys I grew up idolising and all of a sudden I was swimming in a relay with them. You know, when you finish swimming, you're going out for beers with them and it was just, just amazing, you know, but it happened. I guess I was young enough and it was so exciting that I don't remember every single detail. Beijing, obviously I went in there as favourite in a few events and I think I probably didn't enjoy myself as much as I, I should have because I was so focused on on achieving those results and then London I was you know I was there as a relay swimmer and a 50 meter swimmer and I I really enjoyed it I was ready to enjoy it all and soaked it all up and and it was obviously um yeah a bit of a, a bittersweet Olympics with that one with with what transpired and in, in the actual final and then obviously the events afterwards but I guess you know the London city was just amazing I got to see a lot of mates that were living over there and Beijing was just crazy because no one spoke English the cabs didn't know what you were saying and it's quite hard to get around, but um, I guess that's the, the, the beautiful thing about the Olympics is you just get a different experience every time you go and, and everything has its, its perks. Yeah, I imagine they would be quite different. When you were going into the 2012 Olympics, was transitioning out of sport and retiring something on your mind? Was it something that you'd kind of had time to prepare for or was it just not even in your mind at that point? Uh, not really. I think... Um, think it was never really on my mind I think I was lucky that I'd opened my first uh, cafe in 2011 after a world championships uh, back in Perth I was living in Sydney at the time 
and I was lucky that I was able to do that and continue swimming and not have to be working in it. So I think, um, again, a bit of, bit of luck, a bit of hard work and a bit of right place at the right time doing that one. But leading in 2012, no, I, was, I, was, I, I went into that meet with needing a shoulder surgery. So I was kind of, the thing after the Olympics for me was getting my shoulder fixed. There was, wasn't any thoughts about retirement or anything. But I was going to have a year off to get my shoulder fixed. And, and I think I was after that year, I was opening Bib and Tucker. Uh, the plan was to open that, have a bit of a gap here, get that set up and go back to swimming. So I don't think it was a retirement, but definitely life after swimming was, I guess, on the cards. It wasn't a, the thought wasn't, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. But it was, I guess I saw that more of an investment at the time. And it just happened to turn into a career. So I believe the first business you started, correct me if I'm wrong with the name, Lewis Baxter's Espresso Bar, Louise. Yeah. Yep. Louis Baxter's, yeah. Louis Baxter's espresso bar in Subiaco. Where did the business idea stem from to actually create the espresso bar? What was it about an espresso bar that you wanted to start? Uh, it just came from school. I, I really enjoyed home economics at school because I could eat during class. And uh, at that point, I was training pretty hard, so any extra food was always welcome. So I, it's the one thing I really enjoyed. I never had, I never had a, a dream job, but I just always liked cooking. I thought before swimming took off, I was going to do a chef apprenticeship and look into that. But obviously, the hours and what's involved when swimming took off was pretty, uh, yeah, not possible. Uh, and I just always wanted to open a cafe. I just like the idea of of having something to give people. Um, I like, I guess, I see the sense of satisfaction in creating food and creating an experience and seeing people enjoy it. I see that as a bit of a similarity between being a, a sports person and getting those results on the on the scoreboard or, you know, in a hospitality world, it's seeing people enjoy the hard work you put in to, to create that experience for them. So I guess subconsciously I kind of saw those similarities. And, yeah, it was after doing Celebrity MasterChef, after having a virus and pulling out of the 2009 World Champs, I came back to Sydney and, and an opportunity came up to do Celebrity MasterChef. The management at the time knew I loved to cook and, they put me forward for that and, um, yeah, went on that and managed to win it and met someone on the show who was a producer who was moving back to Perth and wanted to have a career change also. And, yeah, we decided to open the, the cafe together. She was here running it while I was still living in Sydney and that's kind of how that one started. So tell me about your time on Celebrity MasterChef. Was it much planning or what's the actual preparation like going into a show like that? I worked at McDonald's and Subway when I grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, Similar, I was- yep cheap labor at mcdonald's so i was running that kitchen and when i was sort of 14 or 15 or something you know and that organization and i guess cooking food quickly i I guess i kind of learned but a lot of it's done for you at mcdonald's and subway was just dealing with people taking orders and and making food obviously but yeah i didn't really know what to expect with that i kind of had obviously watched the show celebrity master chef and knew the challenges that would be there and I just started inviting friends over and telling them to bring food and I'd just cook something and sort of like a mystery box style. I worked on a couple of recipes involving major ingredients that I knew the judges would like. Obviously, chocolate, you know, desserts is chocolate, cream and butter and naughty stuff, which they, they tend to like. So I kind of tried to build a few recipes and, and dishes in, in my repertoire that I could pull out if the right ingredient kind of happened to come out and memorising those recipes as well. I think that was the big one is... Um, trying to remember the ratios that's the the hardest part is you can cook something I'm, I'm not great at i can cook to a certain level with my senses and sort of trying to figure it out but as far as the real show-stopping recipes and dishes you really need to nail the exact sort of grams and and i guess ratios between the ingredients so yeah i did a lot of testing on my friends and had a lot of dinner parties and and ate a lot of good food leading into that 
what were those go-to recipes before going into the show? It was the chocolate delice um, that I practiced that I got the 10 out of 10s for. Um, and then going into it, you, you needed to have a, a signature dish, which was my um, potato gnocchi with lamb, uh, roast lamb and, and uh, a kind of a veal reduction. And then just a few other real simple ones that you could just kind of pull out. There's a salmon with a sort of a roasted uh, capsicum and, and fennel salad and a few different ones. Just tried to cover each category of seafood, meat, pasta and, and dessert. Were your family big foodies? Were they big into their cooking? Yeah, my mum loves cooking. I think I learned a bit off her as well over the years. She's big on baking. So she used to work for a friend of ours who owned Norcia Bakery in Perth. And she was sort of there when he first started. And she used to cook some of his cakes and tarts and, and a few things. And they've tra- they travel the world a fair bit. Yeah, and mum just loves to cook. Um, so I think I learned a little bit from her, a little bit from school. And then when I was swimming and Foxtel came out, it was just the food channel. I think that was my biggest thing. It's just I just used to sit there in between training sessions and watch the Food Channel. That was before MasterChef even came along. I just love cooking shows and, you know, the cook and the chef, ready, steady cook. It sounds simple and it really is, but I guess I'm, I've got a – when I see something done, I kind of store it in my memory bank and I can kind of replicate things from, you know, remembering cooking shows and, and understanding methods and cooking techniques and, and how to do those sorts of things. Um, that was probably, I guess, where I learned a lot as well. So you've opened a couple stores since that first espresso bar and since your time on um, Celebrity MasterChef. What was the idea behind creating new businesses rather than just franchising one? Probably creativity-wise and also, you know, I learned a pretty big lesson with Louis Baxter's the first time around. And being in Sydney, I could walk from my front door and go to 30 or 40 different cafes within a kilometre. You had to make that decision when you walked out your front door. I think Sydney and Melbourne, you kind of have such a big market that you could have six different concepts in one neighbourhood and different locations and still get the foot traffic to, to be busy. When you come back to Perth, every area and suburb is so different. You know, if we had to put a Chinese restaurant on the beach where Bibb and Tucker is, you can guarantee it wouldn't have been as successful as, as having a modern Australian sort of seafood and charcoal grill sort of based restaurant. So when I opened Louis Baxter's, we're at the train station, obviously, and, and in a pretty, a relatively I guess, businessy district, high foot traffic, but they're there to go to Woolies, they're in and out. It's sort of a, a very transient and fast-paced area. And I put on a 12-hour slow-cooked pork belly, um, pulled pork slider as an option for lunch. Obviously, a lot of effort goes into that. It had a nice sort of apple and fennel salad on it. I think it was only $12 or something. And we, we had that on for the whole first month and our highest selling item was a ham and cheese toasty. So I kind of realised that people weren't in the area or coming to our venue for quality food. They were coming for convenient and fast food and coffee sales and toasties and muffins and were kind of what we needed to do. And, and as soon as I sort of realised that, that's kind of what we angled towards. And we had and the other business opportunities came up. It wasn't just a plug and play. I guess you could just do the same thing. And we wanted to evolve from just coffee and toasties, you know, it's a, there's a market for that. And if you find those venues and that's what you want to do, then you, you could franchise that and and um, and make a go of it. But the opportunities that came up, Bib and Tucker, obviously a pretty big venue, an experience-based venue, you know, May Street Larder, which we opened next, busy Canning Highway, quite a lot of neighbourhoods around. And we saw that more as a, a locals cafe. And Goody Twos after that is a Japanese sort of cocktail and whiskey bar. It's in a basement, so we really wanted to make it that kind of speakeasy, really unique sort of if you stumble across it, you'd wonder where the hell, how the hell you'd found this and, and what is this place kind of thing. And then now at the Mayor's, we're at a shopping centre again. That's where I am today. This is Pogo on this side. Um, 
which is a Middle Eastern restaurant. And then next door, we've got Sammy's, which is a coffee and toasty bar. You know, shopping center mentality. It's people are coming and going. With each venue, I think we really just try a concept that made sense for the area and something that made sense that people wouldn't find it strange or that we had a certain concept in a, in a different area. And that's kind of what we've tried to do with each venue is make sure we, we model it towards the demographic and the customers that are coming to that area. How have those stores been during COVID? What's it been like this year for you? A bit of a roller coaster? Yeah, yeah, it's been, um, I don't think anyone's found it easy. It's certainly, you know, we're lucky to be in Perth and things are starting to get a little bit more back to normal. The first, you know, March and April when it first hit was was catastrophic. You know, you went from everything was fine um, to within, you know, 10 days to two weeks having to close all venues. Um, and along the way, we adapted our business model to take away only or reduce capacities. So we sort of went from, you know, Bib and Taco could seat 120 and then the next day we could seat, you know, 60. And then the day after that was sort of 25 and then it was takeaway only. And it was, it was crazy. We were running around every day. We were visiting each venue to figure out what was going to happen tomorrow, what changes we needed to make, you know, change the rosters, change that the staff know that they're going to lose their shifts, their jobs, you know, figure out all the stock we had in our core rooms. Did we need to freeze it? Did we need to throw it out? Did we need to do specials? What are we going to do? And, you know, closing the venues is probably the hardest part. And then, you know, we, we closed everything up and we were ready for, you know, four to six months of, of kind of lockdown and, and being out of work. And then all of a sudden Perth was kind of insulated and the JobKeeper scheme got introduced and all the government incentives and all of a sudden it became viable to, to get everyone back to work. And that was something we were always conscious of was to try and not just sit back and let our staff suffer as well, was try to open up as much as we could to, to get people back to work. And um, yeah, we ended up having maybe a week and a half to two weeks off and then we'll straight back in the venues cleaning, getting ready and reverse of what we did on the way down, which was, you know, we started with takeaway only, then 20 people. And then it was sort of depending on the venue, 40 to 50. Now we're sitting about um, a maximum 70 people. So we're still in phase four. For us, things won't be back to normal till we're in phase five, which I think will be a long way away, I think. I don't think it's going to be smart to go to phase five until there's either a vaccine or the rest of Australia's as stable as WA is, touch wood. Touch wood. What has been the biggest learning curve for you this year? Is it just adapting um, or? I think probably mental health has been the biggest thing. I think um, on different, a few different fronts, like we've, we've worked pretty hard that we've, the way we felt having to close our venues wouldn't be any different from the way other people felt not having a job and having a rental or having a mortgage. Um, we'd be lying if all the owners kind of, didn't have their down down times and um, coming out of that it's something we're certainly more aware of and it's not just from COVID I think it's something that a lot of people don't address is you can work hard and work yourself into the ground and, and not be happy but do it because you feel like you have to and and not reach out and ask for help um, and I think we've we've put in a, a workplace assistance program at all our venues now where all of our staff have access to I guess a counsellor um, and we run workshops on mental health and stress relief and meditation and mindfulness. Um, I think that was probably the biggest thing. And for me, being a busy person and being at home with my family for two weeks, it was it was crazy and it was it was interesting to be home with kids every day. I, I certainly um, loved it for the most part, but at the same time, happy to work some days when the tantrums are happening. And, <laughs> um, but I, I I kind of felt found it hard to to stop. And you know, like I said before, I don't really stop to smell the roses and. You're kind of forced to when when that happens and i want to be more mindful going forward of, of what i enjoy and what i don't and not jump myself into any more scenarios that could make me stressed or have any mental health issues as well and, and i also want to make sure my staff and 
and everyone that works with us feels the same. So I think that was probably the biggest thing we learned through the COVID downturn was just being more aware of other people's feelings and mental states and making sure that we do build that culture that everyone feels safe enough to talk about it. And, you know, if it ever does happen again or anything similar, we've got some structures in place to offer people support. I think there's some fantastic measures and steps that you've put in place. I don't know if every workplace is doing it, but I think it's really important, especially at the moment. What skills do you think you as an athlete acquired that helped you where you are today in business? You know, passion is something that gets you into sport, but I think you can learn to love things as well. And I think what, what makes you what made you a good athlete was loving the things you hate. So the sessions that used to make me throw up, I had to learn to love them, to, to do them to the level that I did throw up and, and got the benefit from them. I think when you get into business, you've got to learn to love the, the jobs you hate. And that's, you know, bookkeeping and accounting and looking at codes that are on your point of sale systems and things that you get no joy from that actually make a difference to your, to your business. You have to learn to love them and, and to do it. So I guess perseverance and persistence and, and passion, you know, you've got to kind of drive that every day and get out of bed and, and want, to, want to see improvement in those areas. Otherwise, you can ignore them and just uh, pretend they don't exist and you can actually really hurt you in the long run. And I guess other than that, it's, it's, it's being able to recover from, from mistakes or find a way to get from A to B in a different way that you, you thought if plan plan A doesn't work, you've always got to have a plan B, C or D. And I guess for me, I learned that with my injuries that I couldn't just do the same training everyone else could do. I had to learn different ways to train to, to get my aerobic fitness when my shoulders were sore, to learn you know how to get leg strength when I had bad hips. I always had to find different ways to adjust my training. And I guess luckily I don't have a huge hospitality background, so I'm not, I guess, ingrained in this is how you do it. I think I've got a quite an open attitude to to try things differently, um, try them, and if they don't work, try something different and find a different way of doing things that is more efficient. You've touched on a little bit there about a plan B. How valuable do you think it is for athletes to have a backup plan for when they retire? How far in advance do you think they need to think about their plan after sport? I don't know if there's a time frame. You know, I, I certainly didn't think about it until the very end. Um, I think I was just, again, lucky and in the right place at the right time with the right experience to just take a, a leap at, at opening my own business. Um, and I certainly think there's a lot of athletes that have to think about it sooner than others because they don't have that the luxury of having sponsors. And I think that was the luxury I had that if if I hadn't have broken a world record at a, at a youngish age and had that that opportunity to take that next step and be able to, to train full time, I, I would have had to start finding a job. It's, it's certainly swimming, especially is not a, a huge money-making sport unless you've got sponsors. The thing you don't learn until you retire is it's a really small portion of your life sport. You know, if you're... You might be at the top level for 10 years and then when it's over, you've got 50, 60 to 70. I don't know what a, you know, an average lifespan is. I don't want to be morbid about it, but the, the biggest portion of your life really starts after swimming you know, and probably the most important. You've got families and kids and you know, you've got to find a way to support yourself for the rest of your life. And while swimming is, and sport is, is everything when you are a sports person, it's really hard to think about not being a sports person. Because if you start thinking about that, you're either not motivated or, or you're, you're second-guessing what you're doing. So I don't know if it's, if it's part of the psyche of not wanting to think about it because you, you think you're, just, you're in it and that's what you're doing. But I guess if you've got a passion, that's the biggest thing is identifying not necessarily life after sport, but if something was to happen, you know, it's like an insurance policy, you know, what am I going to do? What do I enjoy? And you know, I was lucky enough that my management team kind of asked me those questions when they signed me up. Otherwise, I would probably wouldn't have asked them of myself. You know, they said, where do you want to be in five, ten years? 
So I think just knowing where you're going is one thing and having a, a few avenues and along the way to worst case scenario, you could you could explore them. But uh, certainly so, because you never know when your career is going to be over either. So it could be tomorrow, it could be five years. I think as long as you've got passions and you're willing to explore those, that's the main thing. Moving on from being an athlete and from being a business person, what legacy do you most hope to leave as a person? Legacy, it's a big word. I think for me, it's changed. It's changed a lot over the years. I think now I've got a family. It's very family orientated. Uh, before I had my family, I was so so heavily focused on business that it was about having some hospitality venues that I kept in the family for 10 years and my kids took over from me. And before that, it was going to four Olympics and being the first male to do four swimming Olympics. Um, that's kind of what was driving me towards the end before I retired. So it's changed in every phase of my life. But I think it sounds pretty cliche. For me, it's, it's just setting a good example for my kids, showing them how to have a balanced lifestyle and how to work hard and, and how to achieve what you want to achieve and, and to treat their, you know, your family and your friends with respect. And you know, if I can do that for my kids and set them up for their life, I think that's kind of a legacy I'm pretty committed to, to having these days. Money is one thing, but I think you know, it is, I'm being very cliche at the moment. You can't, you can't buy happiness, you can't buy time. And I think that's kind of where COVID's really affected me is that those two weeks you realise that it's not really all about money and business because that can be taken away from you at any, any time. But friends and family and, and experiences and enjoying a life is, is such an important thing that I don't want to keep myself so busy and, and, and stressed for my whole life. I don't get to enjoy it. It's kind of like that 2008 Olympics when I was favourite in the 1500. I, I didn't take the time to, to stop and smell the roses. So I think that's kind of my goal for the next however long. As cliche as it was, I really loved that answer. That is true. It is. There are so many athletes that look up to you now. I remember back when I was figure skating, I was training at Waze and I actually did get to see you uh, swim a few times just in training sessions. But there were and there still are so many athletes that look up to you. Do you have any advice that you received as an athlete that you still carry with you today? I don't think I got no, no advice that really stood out. I think for me, I was always seeking advice biggest thing for me was if you don't know something ask a question and I was lucky enough to to get answers from a lot of great swimmers over the years I I reached out to Roland Schumann to Jason Lazak uh, all the guys that I admired I always reached out when I was younger and asked questions of how to improve my starts how to be a better swimmer what do they do to get better and they really they took time out of their days and when I was at, when I was overseas they spent time with me and I just they were just the nicest people in the world so I think the biggest advice and what, I, what I've seen is that Sport and being competitive is one thing, but you should always give back as well and not just be so stuck in your own world that it's take, take, take. I think you know, give and take is a big thing and, and um, don't be afraid to ask questions. But if someone asks you a question, you should answer that as well. Don't, don't guard your secrets too close because you know, telling someone how to do something is one thing, but actually having the guts and the determination to do it yourself, it's, it's all, all relies on you. So I think it wasn't necessarily advice I got. It was just watching how people at the top of their game behaved and, and replicating that and, and modelling my career off, off what I thought excellence looked like. And that was kind of when you meet those people, you really know what that is. So I'd say, yeah, it comes down to who you idolise and, and, um, and, and what you see that as. I don't think advice is really um, it's a fickle thing. I think experience is, is a really important thing to learn. If, if someone gives you advice, it's almost like you should do what they say. I think for me, it was gathering other people's experiences and, and cherry picking those those bits out of it that I think resonated with me and that I could add to my career. So I think be careful to ask for advice because if you don't follow someone's advice, they might 
might think you're uh, you're wasting their time. But I think if you ask for people's experiences, you can gather so much knowledge and make your own opinion of where you should go and what you should do. That's fantastic. We finish off the podcast with the same question for every athlete. So what's next? What's next on the horizon for you? Uh, nothing. Good answer. <laughs> I think for me, uh, uh, you know, we've got five businesses at the moment and two kids and for me, next on the horizon is nothing. I think I've pushed my whole life to get where I am and I think I, I've, my goal is actually to slow down for the next couple of years and, and just enjoy enjoy life, stop and smell the roses, I think. So learning to be more mindful and, and learning to, to, to be grateful for what we have and, and learning how to stop, it's a pretty um, pretty important thing as well. Well, I think that's a good so what's next. I haven't had a, a nothing as an answer yet, so you're the first, yeah. but I do like <laughs> it. I, I think it's... I think it's something a lot of people have realised this year, especially that you've got to slow down, appreciate what's around you. We'll finish it yeah. up there. Thank you so much for joining. I I do really appreciate the time and, yeah, like you said, giving back to the different athletes, not necessarily just swimming in this case, but, yeah, mm. just giving back. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much to Eamon Sullivan for joining this episode of So What's Next. If you liked the episode and you would like to hear more or show your support, uh, you can find us on Instagram at podcast so what's next or you can hit subscribe on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or hit follow on Spotify to keep up to date with upcoming episodes. Following and subscribing on the likes of Apple Podcast and Spotify help to get the podcast in front of more people. And so thank you so much for your time. 